Welcome to America's Cannabis Conversation, where you can hear experts from all facets of the cannabis business as to what's happening in this exploding industry. Keep yourself informed. Join the conversation. Hello, this is America's Cannabis Conversation Weekend Update. I'm your host, Dan Perkins. New York City. Marijuana firms, developers line up real estate ahead of New York's adult use sales. With adult use cannabis newly legal in New York, entrepreneurs and developers are on the prowl for real estate and scooping up everything from a former prison site to greenhouses. And there are even plans for a sprawling cannabis campus. It's no wonder people want to get into the industry, given that New York City's position as the nation's financial and commercial hub. Prospects for adult use market in New York will generate $2.3 billion in annual sales in its fourth full year. Recreational sales are expected to begin next year. In response, companies that already are in New York medical marijuana industry, many of them multi-state operators, have been scouting locations and even purchasing facilities in anticipation of the expansion into the adult use market. You have a lot of MSOs trying to gobble up real estate and get into position so they're ready to go, said Gregory Tanner, executive managing director and principal of the New York-based real estate firm Lee & Associates. California, how cannabis growers can manage unseasonably warm temperatures and protect their crops. In unseasonable heat, marijuana and hemp plants wilt, droop, curl, and even stop trichome production. Overheated plants will also experience a slow nutrient uptake and perspire too quickly. All of this is happening in the marijuana and hemp fields in the western United States. A high-pressure dome has trapped heat over much of the country for weeks and is expected to last until July. Fortunately, cannabis growers have several tools at their disposal when the mercury hits record highs. Cultivators have been looking to beat the heat should consider using shade cloth in fields to lessen the impact of direct sunlight and shifting hours for laborers to work during more ideal conditions. Growers in Washington state are bracing for several days in a row of temperatures well above 100 degrees. It's a little early for it to be that hot, said Scott Burka, owner of Aloha Botanical, a licensed marijuana producer and processor in Washington. Temperatures typically peak in mid-July to August. The real issue is how long will it last? Vegetating growth can withstand more heat, but once the plant flowers, the high temperatures can make processing difficult. California. California marijuana farmers prepping for a wildfire season. Wildfire season is quickly approaching in California, and marijuana farmers all over the immense state are trying to bolster their defenses against the perennial threat that weakened record-setting havoc in 2020. Conditions appear to be worse this year, and marijuana growers are making preparations as best they can. Robert Salafano recently concluded maintenance checks on 30 fire extinguishers strategically located in his Humboldt County-based Villa Paradise Farms, which produce and sell bulk flour to distributors. Firefighting devices are on every rig and quad down to the pump house and the power station, the main compound, and near the solar panel systems. The key to survival out here is immediate suppression. 
says Stefanano, a longtime volunteer fireman and cannabis grower who knows the terrain better than most. In our final story, we're going to talk about a $9 million dispute over a CBD contract dismissed over jurisdiction. In Oregon, a $9 million dispute between a hemp farm and Oregon CBD processor was dismissed after a federal judge ruled that the case was in the wrong court. Third Way Farms was disputing a $9 million claim from Pure Valley Solutions over a contract for the processing and production of winterized CBD oil. In March 2020, Third Wave asked the court to relieve its of its technical contract in light of the spread of the coronavirus. The Third Wave declared bankruptcy before the matter could be settled. U.S. District Judge Robert E. Weiner suggests the dispute should be settled in Oregon. This has been your America's Cannabis Conversation Quick News Update. I'm Dan Perkins. Let's see who's on the conversation today. First up is our new session called Discover, Engage, and Compete in the Cannabis Landscape, presented by New Frontier Data, a global leader in cannabis data. And joining us today, John Kigia, who is the Chief Knowledge Officer for New Frontier Data. And we had a fascinating conversation how the cannabis markets on the retail side have changed dramatically in the last 12 to 18 months. Next up is Morgan Fox from the National Cannabis Industry Association and Director of Communications. Our conversation was expressed intentions by members of the Senate to bring major changes to the cannabis law. Back with an always popular segment is Dr. Jordan Tischler, Harvard-educated practitioner with experience in treating patients with cannabis. And last but not least is Michael J. Regan and Colin Farron, who join us and they talk about the future of dispensaries when we get reform legislation. This has been your America's Cannabis Conversation Weekend Update. I'm Dan Perkins. Thanks for joining us. Let's go to the show. Welcome back to the conversation. And joining us today is John Kajia from New Frontier Data. New Frontier Data is one of the sponsors on our program, and they have a philosophy that I think is important that we've named their segment. It's called Discover, Engage, Compete in the Cannabis Landscape. It's presented by New Frontier Data, a global leader in cannabis data. John, welcome back to the program. It's always a pleasure to have you. It's a delight to be back, Dan. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, John, uh, you're here to talk to us about retail trends in the cannabis space. And I'm assuming that's what consumers are doing or not doing and where they're doing it. So tell us about your report. The insights that we're going to be sharing today are part of um, uh, some new research that we released in our latest cannabis consumer report um, that uh, your, your audience can find at newfrontierdata.com uh, slash analyst reports, uh, analyst, slash, analyst dash reports. And in it, we explore some of the new and really compelling developments in 2021 based on where the cannabis consumer is today, what we're seeing in the legal markets, and what this tells us about where this, uh, this industry is going. And specifically here, as we're looking at the retail trends, and Dan, what informs my perspective is I've just actually come back from uh, a trip in, uh, to, to California where we spent a couple of weeks literally touring the state. Um, we visited nearly two dozen different dispensaries, um, some farms, and really striking to see how much has changed in the state uh, between uh, you know, December and January 2020 when I was last there, 
uh, and, and May 2021. And one of the biggest trends we've noticed is where cannabis flower is sitting inside dispensaries relative, relative to value-added products. It used to be that when you walked into a dispensary, you know, you, you, you were basically well greeted by uh, flower products, which were the most popular products in the market and what people were generally coming to dispensaries for. But there's been this really market shift as the value-added product side of the market. And here I mean uh, edibles, vapes, tinctures, uh, um, topicals, etc. Um, you know, the, the value-added side of the market has grown so robustly that in a lot of dispensaries now, uh, you know, the flower is being moved to the back because the people who want it know where they can go and get it. Um, but they're, they're bringing the, these value-added products further forward into the store so that consumers are encountering these, um, uh, these products when they walk in. And so even if you're coming in and intend to buy some flour, you have to pass these products on your way toward the flour. It's a real important shift because it, it, it underscores the, the growth trajectory that we're seeing in the value-added uh, product environment. And, and I think this is only a trend that's going to continue. Um, the people who want flour know where to go to get it in the stores, uh, but retailers are thinking of creative ways to make sure that even the people who want flour are walking past these uh, uh, value-added products uh, on their way towards the flour, uh, kind of further behind in the store. We have purists who want the flour, and we have other people who are interested in the, the prepackaged products. And 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 if if this is not a question that you want to answer, for whatever reason, that's fine. I just I feel compelled to ask it. When I when I take it when I think about a prepackaged product and versus the flour, what I want to know is is the experience any different between using the flour or buying a pre-packaged product? Am I going to get the same amount of THC or, or am I going to get the same kind of experience but I don't have the hassle of chopping up the flour and, and either smoking it or putting it in cookies or whatever? Is is the the benefit to the consumer from, from the pure stimulation pretty much equal to both products? And maybe I'll start first with the, the idea of the purist versus the packaged product uh, consumer. And one of the things that we've, we've observed as this market has evolved is that there's actually a lot of consumers who straddle both uh, flour and non-flour products. You know, so the, the group of consumers who only consume flour uh, is relatively small compared to the group of consumers who consume both flour and packaged products. Okay. And to your point specifically, the, the, um, one of the reasons why flour remains so popular is because there are few value-added products that can replicate the immediacy of effect of smoking cannabis. In mm -hmm. terms of onset time, even the most effective edibles uh, will generally take you, you know, 10 to 15 minutes before you feel that onset effect. Um, now, well, vapes and concentrates certainly offer a very immediate experience, uh, but right. particularly for, for edibles and, and, and for topicals, the onset times tend to be uh, a little longer, a little slower than burning flour. But tincture, as I understand However, it, John, tincture, tincture, which you can take in your, under your tongue, can almost get into your blood system as fast as smoking. 
Yes. So, so tinctures do have a uh, which you would you know tinctures being drops that you can put under your tongue, and because uh, there's a the, there's a lot of cannabinoid receptors in the muc you know, mucosal membranes in the mouth. Um, do also afford uh, uh, rapid onset times. But even with tinctures, you don't get quite that same immediacy of effect where within seconds of taking a, um, a, a, a drawing on a joint that you feel the, the effects. Um, now, a, a couple of things about what is happening in the, in the prepackaged side of the ledger. One okay. is that because of the innovation that has been happening, Products have, you know, edibles, for example, uh, which may have had onset times of 45 minutes to two hours. Um, they've, they've worked on the formulations, they've developed the formulations enough that there's a lot of edibles now which have cut the onset time down from 45 minutes plus to 10 to 15 minutes. And we're only going to see that um, come down even uh, shorter as, as the innovation in this market continues. Well, you know, um, second, we, you know John, we I'm sorry. I apologize for keep interrupting you. This this is a fascinating conversation. Uh, We have a gentleman who's been on this show almost from the beginning, Dr. Jordan Tischler. He's our cannabis doctor on call, and he has a practice in Massachusetts, in Boston, uh, treating patients with cannabis. He makes the point when you, if you don't know what you're doing and you walk into a a dispensary and you say, well, what do I got this? What do I need? And you, the bud tender tells you, you need this. He's saying that, to treat different problems, you need different release patterns of the impact on the body. Mm-hmm. If you go through the exactly. gut, it, it takes longer, but it lasts longer than going through the lungs. Mm-hmm. And so has that that sophistication reached the consumer yet, John? Because if you're talking about faster and faster, it may be the onset may be quicker, but the longevity of it may be diminished because we're getting more front-loaded uh, benefit. You know, the doctor is absolutely right, and I'm so glad we're having this conversation because the, the growing sophistication of the consumer in terms of their understanding of how different products manifest uh, physiologically and, and how they feel on, on, uh, when they consume different products is part of the reason why we're seeing this meteor, meteoric rise in interest in the packaged side of, of the industry. It's not mm-hmm. to say that demand for flour is declining, but rather consumers are realizing that, okay, they'll have one type of effect uh, when they smoke, but there are times when you know, they just want to apply uh, or they have a, a bit of an ache in the knee and they don't want to have to smoke uh, to have a full body effect if they're seeking targeted relief for their knee, so they'll get a topical and apply it locally. Or right. they may be having uh, trouble sleeping and realize that, um, you know, an, an, a slow-acting edible may actually be better to both help them fall asleep but then help them stay asleep longer through the night uh, yes. rather than uh, a product form that might uh, dissipate more quickly. Right. And so, uh, and, and then even uh, as we think about kind of the return to social society, um, mm-hmm. for people who are going to be out at barbecues and dinner parties uh, in the summer of 2021, you know, in that kind of setting, maybe a cannabis beverage might be a better uh, uh, thing to have uh, to consume in that kind of setting so that people are drinking cannabis beverages that can go on a one-to-one drink basis with somebody who's having a, a, you know, a can of beer or a bottle of wine or a glass of mm-hmm. wine. Um, mm-hmm. And so th- this idea of use-specific applications um, is part of the reason we're seeing this diffusion in the product landscape as well as we're not seeing necessarily 
you know, cannabis, be, uh, cannabis flower being displaced. Consumers are not saying, I know, I'm never going to smoke flower again, but they're realizing and awakening to this reality that um, for different use cases, there's a lot more effective products than, than flower that might be better suited for, for those scenarios. And, uh, and, and, and that makes it a really interesting time and exciting time for innovation in this market. John, I would think that um, that the the ability to have package to, that I can take with me and do whatever I want with when I want to do it um, also has an advantage, in my opinion, just one person's opinion, over flour in that, for the most part, the quickest way to get the reaction from the flour is to smoke it. Yet we have a country that's saying don't smoke cigarettes, and nobody's talking about what are the long-term medical implications of smoking marijuana in terms of lungs and everything else. So I think that, that there are people who are interested but don't want to smoke it, and I hear that all the time, especially with seniors. I don't want to smoke it, but I want to get help, and the tinctures and the, and the ointments and topicals are an alternative for what is a potentially a very large market of people. Exactly right. And then I would add another group to that, which is the – uh, medical patients who are using cannabis, let's say, principally for, for uh, symptom mitigation or pain management, and mm-hmm. because of that, tend to require very high doses of cannabis. It gets to a point where above a certain threshold, it, it, it just becomes really difficult to smoke enough to alleviate their, their pain. And so mm-hmm. these uh, non-combustion-based products, whether they're tinctures or edibles, uh, which allow you to, to ingest higher doses of THC without the corresponding impact of smoking that much um, uh, is, is part of is, is another market that I think has really benefited from uh, the, these developments in the packaged product categories. Um, the medical patients, I think, have, have really helped uh, drive some compelling innovation around high-potency products uh, that, that are well-suited for, for patients um, who are seeking acute relief but who aren't able to smoke the quantities required to get that relief. All right. We've been speaking with John Kajia from New Frontier Data talking about trends in cannabis. John, thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure, Dan. Thank you very much. Hello, this is Dan Perkins with more information on the New Frontier Data software called Equio. Let me ask you this question. Would the success of your business be impacted if you knew the frequency of visits customers spent in competitor stores? Of course it would. The question is, where do you go to get this information? This is just one of the many pieces of information that you can get through the Equio software available at newfrontierdata.com. Remember to click on the Equio button and don't forget to ask for the special offer. I'm Dan Perkins. You're listening to America's Cannabis Conversation on W420RadioNetwork.com. Welcome back to the conversation, and joining us today is our old friend Morgan Fox from the National Cannabis Industry Association, and we've got a lot to talk about. Hello, Morgan. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me again. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I saw yesterday an article online that Chuck Schumer has indicated that he wants to bring up in the Senate uh, major changes in cannabis law in this term. Do you read what he's saying, that same thing? Uh, yeah, 
absolutely. And we haven't seen the legislation yet. Um, I think currently the uh, the next steps are for uh, the uh, the leaders of that uh, legislation, which would be uh, uh, Chuck Schumer, Ron Wyden, and Cory Booker, are going to be uh, hearing from stakeholders and interested parties uh, in terms of what they'd like to see in the legislation. But it looks as if it's going to be uh, a, a descheduling bill of some sort, uh, probably at least partially modeled on the Moore Act and partially modeled on uh, uh, Senator Schumer's uh, earlier uh, cannabis legislation. Uh, but again, we don't really have uh, enough of the details yet. I don't think that they're set in stone. But uh, it's absolutely a, a heartening message that uh, that we're hearing in terms of, uh, at the very least, being able to uh, have hearings on uh, cannabis policy issues in the Senate in the coming term. For almost a year and a half on a regular basis, you're probably the most frequent guest on the show because it's important of your association. But... I want to say, and you can disagree with me, I want to say up until prior to the election that the consensus of the, of the many, many people that I've talked to on this show is that it was going to be some period of time before we saw any significant cannabis reform. And I think that there are an awful lot of people in various aspects of this business who might have been caught off guard about what happened yesterday and the speed at which things could happen. Uh, a lot of people in this industry, I don't think are prepared for the possible changes that could take place. Well, I think that some people might've been a little bit caught off guard by how quickly uh, the, uh, the Senate had started signaling that it wanted to prioritize this issue. Uh, we knew that it was going to be up there, but, um, you know, I think that uh, there was some question about how quickly uh, it would start to be addressed. Uh, but I think it's also important to point out that um, announcing an intention to introduce a bill is uh, not the same as getting that bill passed. Uh, that could take quite some time. Uh, but again, I think it's a, a really, uh, you know, it's cause for uh, a lot of optimism and hope that uh, this issue is being addressed uh, so uh, readily. Uh, I think that that was in large part due to the work of uh, um, uh, congressional Democrats in the House uh, after the election with uh, the passage of the Moore Act in uh, that chamber, as well as uh, you know, activists and advocates uh, for cannabis policy reform, uh, really making a concerted effort to raise the priority level of this issue uh, just over the last couple of months, particularly as it relates to uh, the type of criminal justice reforms that the Biden administration is hoping to uh, explore over the coming years. Do you think uh, it, what happened to the Moore Act? Did it, it, I, did it come to the Senate? Is it on the dock? Is Schumer going to bring it up? Or is this potential legislation they're talking about going to supersede it? So uh, technically, the uh, the Moore Act is uh, is still in play. I mean, it had to switch uh, uh, lead sponsors because uh, uh, Senator Harris is now Vice President Harris, uh, and uh, she was the uh, the lead sponsor in the Senate uh, prior to the uh, the change in administration. Um, I think in the House, we're very likely to see a reintroduction of the Moore Act, but with uh, a number of changes, uh, you know, hopefully with a more robust uh, regulatory structure that uh, we're uh, trying to weigh in on uh, during these uh, upcoming negotiations, but also with uh, some of the uh, language that was amended to the bill uh, the week before the, uh, the vote in the House in December uh, being stripped out of it. Uh, in particular, the uh, 
provision that would allow uh, federal regulators to ban people who uh, have uh, any sort of uh, felony conviction from uh, getting a federal cannabis business license. Uh, that kind of flies in the face of uh, a major intention of the MORE Act. And uh, I think that um, everybody from uh, the industry to uh, you know, the, uh, the purely advocate uh, um, perspective want to see that provision removed. Do you think, Morgan, that what we're looking at is what's driving this issue of decriminalization? The um, criminal justice reform is a significant driver behind legalization? Absolutely. I mean, these are uh, you know really, really closely intertwined uh, issues. I mean, clearly, uh, legalizing cannabis is not going to address all of the criminal justice and social justice issues that uh, we're uh, dealing with in this country. Uh, but it is uh, has been a major tool for a lot of the criminal justice abuses that we've seen over the last few decades. And uh, I think it's uh, vital that it be addressed as part of a, uh, uh, a larger criminal justice reform push. And it's certainly at the top of mind for... Uh, um, uh, lawmakers, particularly Democrats, and I think that all lawmakers, uh, including uh, members of the GOP, are also looking at things like tax revenue and job creation in the wake of the economic recession caused by the pandemic. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I just want to go back to this criminal justice. If I, as I looked at the new states that have come on in the last couple of years making cannabis legal in their states, they seem to be also tied with with expungement of records and decriminalization and and changing of the laws from a criminal standpoint seems to be a, a very important part that wasn't there uh, several years ago. It, it's it's increased in prominence, and that as you said, the two are married together. And I wonder if that will be the catalyst that will bring about is ultimately bring about the change, criminal justice reform. Well, I think it's definitely a major part of it, uh, you know, both in terms of practical measures, but also as a catalyst. I mean, this is a conversation that has definitely evolved significantly over the last couple of years um, in terms of criminal justice reform broadly. Uh, but also, you know, I think that there's a whole lot more awareness uh, now than there was even a few years ago about the, uh, the disproportionate impact that cannabis prohibition has had on marginalized communities. And so uh, the need to address that in uh, legalization legislation has uh, increased accordingly. Um, yeah, I always remember looking at the uh, the campaign in uh, Colorado back in 2012. Uh, in the uh, the lead up to that campaign, uh, there was a lot of polling done uh, by uh, proponents to try to determine exactly uh, what sort of uh, uh, criminal justice reforms they could include in uh, that ballot initiative, and uh, you know particularly uh, expunging old records and things like uh, uh, retroactive amnesty. And uh, unfortunately, the voters uh, pretty resoundingly showed in this polling that uh, inclusion of such measures would likely kill that ballot initiative. You know, fast forward uh, less than 10 years, and you can't have a conversation about legalizing cannabis without talking about uh, social equity in the industry and repairing the harms caused by prohibition. You know, I think that's a wonderful evolution on the topic, and uh, I think that it's only going to become uh, more central to this discussion as we uh, go uh, get closer to uh, you know, real national policy change as well as at the state level. So, Morgan, I, I understand the the desire to want to deal with um, criminal justice reform. But another piece of it, and you mentioned it in passing, but I want to spend a moment or two, 
that is in some newer states that are not on uh, minority ownership of licenses seems to be a growing issue, a growing concern. Um, I don't know that that's equity per se, but but there seems to be more and more concern that that uh, the blacks have been left out of the economic opportunity uh, for cannabis. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, a lot of this is uh, because of the, uh, the disproportionate impact of prohibition um, in terms of, uh, you know, saddling people with lifelong criminal records and uh, the uh, uh, damage to uh, the community that occurs when people are incarcerated, uh, making it difficult for people to find uh, jobs and education because of uh, uh, drug convictions. Uh, and uh, the deterioration or you know, complete lack of uh, generational wealth that has been built up in marginalized communities. Uh, so, uh, you know, ensuring that uh, there's uh, you know equal representation and that um, there uh, you know some of these uh, these resources that are generated by a newly legal market, uh, if not all of them, are going towards uh, restoring the harm caused by prohibition are uh, you know really vitally important. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of the, uh, you know, despite the fact that this is becoming more central to the conversation, uh, a lot of the, uh, um, the tools and methods that have been used to address it haven't really been that effective. Uh, so I think it's, uh, you know, really a matter of uh, people learning from the, uh, you know, mistakes and uh, failures as well as the successes of a lot of these uh, existing state and local programs uh, be applied to uh, any new legislation or uh, new programs that are being developed. You know, I think that there's a long, long, uh, you know, road to get to, uh, you know, true equity and uh, representation in the industry as well as repairing those harms done by prohibition. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's a learning curve. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, right now uh, people are definitely learning about it. And I know that, uh, uh, you know, our, uh, our diversity, equity, and inclusion committee is working hard at the state level and the national level to, you know, help provide us with the tools to inform our work and to uh, help, uh, state regulators and uh, uh, state-based and local uh, cannabis industry groups and individual businesses uh, learn how to be better in this area. Um, uh, you know, obviously there are other uh, problems involved as well, including, uh, you know, very high barriers to entry generally in uh, the cannabis industry, at least in uh, legal state markets, in terms of you know, high application fees, uh, extremely limited numbers of licenses, um, you know, ineffective social equity licensing programs, uh, you know, so there are a lot of hurdles uh, still remaining, and uh, you know, uh, we just uh, really need to focus on chipping away at those as much as we can at every opportunity. Uh, you can follow the National Cannabis Industry Association online at thecannabisindustry.org, and we're also uh, on uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Thank you for joining us today, Morgan. Thanks for having me. Hello, this is Dan Perkins for America's Cannabis Conversation, and I want to tell you about a new sponsor, New Frontier Data, and their Equio amazing software to help you discover, engage, and compete in the cannabis marketplace. For the first time, you have the ability to discover on your computer desktop valuable information on state, city, and even zip codes to assess your opportunities for cannabis investment in that market. Through the Engage portion, you will be able to figure out what products in a marketplace consumers would be interested in buying. And finally, with Compete, you'll be able to look at prospect profiles and find new and innovative opportunities to test new products to attract new customers. Significant change is coming in the cannabis industry, and you need to get ready now and be prepared for this fantastic opportunity.
opportunity ahead of you. For more information on the EQO software for your business, go to newfrontierdata.com and look for the EQO section and expand your horizons. I'm Dan Perkins. Welcome back to America's Cannabis Conversation, and our doctor, Dr. Jordan Tischler, is in the studio talking with us today, continuing of our previous conversation about dealing with pain management and how cannabis can use it. So, doctor, um, I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh, the idea of an older group of people like myself uh, are are having sometimes having trouble with their their general practitioners, their doctors, when they talk to them about the possibility of whether or not cannabis would work in their pain management. And I said to you previously that my wife had hip surgery, and um, when we talked to this, the doctor about pain management, uh, he was he did a Jekyll and Hyde when she mentioned the, the possibility of cannabis, and he was um, actually uh, rude, I think would be a fair discussion, so, Doctor, how, how do we how do we as patients um, who want to take more control of our own care um, find a doctor who has the compassion to help us find whatever the treatment is necessary? How do we go about doing that? And then, how do you, as a practitioner, decide which strain of cannabis that you need to treat treat somebody with for pain? Uh, these are great questions. I'm not sure we're going to get through all of them in a 10-minute segment, but let me see what I can say in, in that period of time. The first thing I would say is I'm sorry that your wife had this negative interaction with her surgeon. Um, there's really no excuse for his being rude other than the fact that he's a human being like anyone else and perhaps um, uh, felt um, uh, uncomfortable with this discussion, largely I would guess because he doesn't know very much about it. Um, mm -hmm. The reality here is that many physicians don't know a whole lot about it. Um, I would like to think that most of them, in not knowing much about it, would get to the point where they would educate themselves a little bit about it, um, and not necessarily that they would um, you know, prescribe it for your wife, for example, because they may still feel out of their league, but at least know enough to say this is a legitimate medicine and here's somebody I trust as your doctor to send you to who can help you with the details. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, so what I call that as a cannabis specialist. And I started an organization a while back called the Association of Cannabis Specialists. And the goal there was to find doctors um, who knew this stuff and who cared and would be present and, 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 um, and helpful to their patients, uh, specifically around cannabis care. Um, and that's been pretty successful. So let me give you some more information. The Association of Cannabis Specialists is available on the web at cannabis-specialist.org. Again, cannabis-specialist.org. And on that site, amongst many other things that you might want to explore, is a directory of, of doctors who um, not only are members, but in becoming members are up to speed on the, on the data and most importantly have taken a pledge to treat their patients in an ethical manner, which means not only knowing about cannabis, but also not being sort of the kind of doctor that's just going to give you a card and then say, go talk to the 20-year-old bud tender. Um, <laughs> 
you know, to your question about strains and such like that, uh, that's a much longer discussion, but I'm going to try to encapsulate it very quickly and simply say strains are not important. Strains are a marketing device for selling weed. So this is something that your cannabis specialist should be sitting down and talking over with you. Dosing and route of administration, those are very important for getting the best, the best result for pain relief or any other symptom that we're treating with cannabis. But the strains themselves... Um, really are just chemically too similar for there to be a significant medical difference. Now, that doesn't mean that people don't develop a preference for one over the other, but it's not the same as did it help your back pain, which is really a medical outcome. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that this leads us into a, a potentially another segment for another day, which is sort of the smoke and mirrors that are involved in the industry and the ways in which those, those things sell lots of product but aren't necessarily in the, you know, to the best advantage of patients who are not looking for something that's kind of interesting. They're really looking for something that's reliable and effective. And it's so I would argue that patients and recreational users are both equally legitimate but have very different needs and therefore need very different treatment and different products and such like that. And that's not something the industry has really uh, got a good handle on at the moment. Let me let me follow that with a question, if I if I might. Um, we Maybe have, I can put uh, in one sentence quickly. Sure. Um, back Go right on ahead. your wife. Um, one of the things that often gets brought up at the dispensary is CBD, right? Um, mm -hmm. And CBD, uh, we could do a whole segment on that. But just thinking about your wife, and you mentioned some blood thinners and such like that. CBD is contraindicated for her. The bud tender, who's a twenty year old who, at least in Massachusetts, where I'm familiar with the regulations, is required to have a high school diploma or equivalent, and nothing more um, is likely to say, if you say, I have hip pain, here's a bottle of CBD. But that's actually potentially dangerous for your wife and for many other patients if they're taking it and taking enough of it. So, again, I often say, look, the bud tenders mean well, they're nice people, they're very friendly, but basically they are educated on the subject to the level of a Starbucks barista. So if you wouldn't ask your barista your health questions, probably you shouldn't be asking the bud tenders. Well, that, that, that brings up a question, um, and that is but, in the 11 states where adult use is legal, you don't need a doctor, you don't need a prescription to buy cannabis in the dispensary. So mm -hmm. do, we have a, do we have a risk of self-medication with people who really don't know what they're doing? Absolutely. Um, you know, at, at some point, we have a, a, a unique situation um, in that here is a substance that has true medical benefit as well as true recreational benefit um, and is sort of more or less freely available. Um, and so, yes, we can definitely find ourselves in the position where not only patients may ch choose to self-medicate, but there's a huge amount of um, marketing pressure with lots of dollars behind it 
who are, you know, which is out there trying to convince people that they should self-medicate or that they should get their advice from the bud tender. And the problem with that is that fundamentally the reason that marketing is going on is because that sells more weed. Whereas if you go to the doctor who tends to be, shall we say, thoughtful and conservative and, and really focusing on uh, precision dosing, that tends to actually lead to less use. And so there is a little bit of a conflict there um, and that, you know, that there, there's a lot of messaging that's going to point sick people in the wrong direction. Uh, and I see this a lot because, of, you know, sometimes patients come to me and I tell them, you know, here's, here's what I think you need to do. And then they go to the store and the store people tell them something else and that invariably doesn't end well. Um, or, Alternately, they went, like you mentioned, sort of through the recreational system, or maybe they got a card from some other doctor who didn't give them any guidance, and then they use it, and it doesn't work, or they feel sick, or any of those sorts of things. Then they come to me. They say, Doc, I tried all this stuff. What happened? And then I look at what they tried, and it's either something that I would have predicted is ineffective, dangerous, or just way too much. Um, so I think that you know, there is that conflict between what the industry would like people to do and what's sort of really medically best for them. And I guess at the end of the day, it's going to come down to each patient having to think this through for themselves. And I'm hopeful that, as you say, most of this group are older people uh, with some maturity. And I, 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 I hope that most of them will look at their doctors, particularly their cannabis specialist, as somebody that they are uh, going to for advice and guidance and value that advice and guidance so that then they end up with, you know, best outcome. So uh, we've been talking with Dr. Jordan Tischler, our cannabis doctor on call. And one more time, doctor, how can people get a hold of you? You can find me on the web at inhalemd.com or you can call at 617-477-8886. So we've got about a little more than two minutes left in this program, and I want to ask you the question, one of the things I put up front was, how do you decide which product a person should use, or does it make any difference? I mean, if we're going to generalize to product more so than strains, there's, it absolutely does make a difference. And I would start with this, the idea that, you know, there are different types of pain. Um, and what product we use and how we use it depends a little bit on what we're treating. So um, somebody who has pain, for example, from something that's acute and episodic, like a migraine headache, um, those people generally speaking, would do best with cannabis by inhalation. And the reason for that is inhaled cannabis has a very quick onset, which is good if you're having a horrible migraine come on. Um, it also doesn't last super long, lasts about three or four hours, which if your headache has now gone away, it's good for the medicine to kind of go away. On the other hand, somebody who has uh, osteoarthritis of their spine um, and who's miserable kind of 24-7 as a result, that's somebody where the, the quick onset short duration is going to lead to kind of a yo-yo effect. I feel better, it wore off. Oh, now I took some more, I feel better again. Up, down, up, down. That's not generally thought to be a good approach to pain control. So something that we take by mouth, which has kind of the opposite uh, characteristics to the inhaled stuff, in that it's 
slow to start working, but when it works, it works much longer, like 8 to 12 hours, that's going to give us more of that continuous pain coverage that we're really looking for that allows people to take the medicine and then go on about their lives. Well, so that, that you may be able to get the same strain in an edible or uh, oil or uh, um, something you can smoke or and vape or not. I don't know about that. I know it's been banned in Massachusetts for a while. But so that what it sounds like what you're saying, depending upon the kind of pain you're trying to treat, then you, you have to have more concern about the delivery system, how you get it into your system and how your system manages it, than what, what brand of cannabis it really is. Yes, that's is that, absolutely is that true. The, the, yeah. the, the route of administration is hugely important, and the dosing is really important. You know, if you get your advice from somebody who's a heavy user, they're going to say, you know, go ahead and use like I use, but that's going to be too much for somebody who isn't, uh, you know, a long-term user. And it's also more than is likely necessary. Again, from a medical approach, you know, less is more. What we want is to find that sweet spot right at the place where we get the maximum benefit with a minimum of side effects. And the side effects that we really need to think about primarily is that intoxication. All medicines have side effects, and cannabis is no different. Cannabis can cause in some intoxication, and that's just a side effect we need to manage. We have to view it that way so it's not upsetting or concerning. Um, and, I, and I think that the key is that if we're dosing this properly, that place where we're getting maximum benefit is effective for the pain or whatever else we're treating. And quite frankly, that modicum of intoxication really isn't all that impressive or intrusive. Um, and it's the sort of thing that once you're over sort of the initial concerns about it, it doesn't bother people any longer. So um, this has been just a um, great conversation. It was everything that I hoped it would be, and I appreciate your, your time and great. your interest in, in our listeners. Uh, just in case, ladies and gentlemen, if you didn't hear all of today's interview with Dr. Jordan, you can go to w420radionetwork.com, and you can find uh, the archive section and download this show and the previous show and look for notifications about the next visit from the doctor on call Dr. Jordan Tischler. Thank you so much for your help and your advice and your time today. Hello, this is Dan Perkins, and I've got a question for you. If you knew what your customers wanted, would you be more successful? Of course you would, but how can you obtain this valuable information for your success? If you use the Engage portion of the Equio software from New Frontier Data, you won't need to guess what customers want to buy. Guessing can be very challenging and expensive, and more often than not, non-productive. If you want to find out what customers want, then go to NewFrontierData.com and click on the Equio button, and don't forget to ask about the special offer. This is Dan Perkins. Welcome back to the conversation, and joining us again are Mike and Cullen, our two money guys. And we've had them on a couple of times before, and I keep coming up with questions, so we've invited them back for a third time, and they'll be a, a regular reoccurring group for us. So, Mike and Cullen, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having us, Dan. We spent the last two visits you had with us talking about changes that are going to take place 
should something positive come out of the movement that Schumer and other people in the Senate are talking about the cannabis business? And we've talked about the possibility of how banking might change and 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 how the the players may change, and it could be a, a, one of the best, fastest growing and biggest growing markets in the world because it's already got a base of illicit business, uh, depending on your perspective, fifty to seventy billion. But I want to I, I want to go a, a little bit different direction. Prior to the pandemic, if you wanted to, if you got a license to build a dispensary and sell product, the model that was being used for building a dispensary was the Apple Store. And depending upon how sophisticated and how big your space is going to be, I've had people who are in the business of building these stores saying you can spend anywhere from a half a million to a million dollars. I saw about three months ago where an operator had three stores built, had leases to build two more, and he spent 750000 per store to open the first three stores. And for an evaluation purposes, they only valued them at $350,000. One of the things that I've noticed through this pandemic, because cannabis was considered to be a, a, an important dispensary, was an important business and it could stay open, the whole delivery system of how we bought cannabis and how we buy cannabis has changed. Home delivery is a huge business in California and in, in Colorado. And as we go with more and more states, I think there's going to be a fundamental change in how we as consumers buy it, whether it's online through an Amazon or as one guy up in the state of Washington is using uh, drones to deliver it, uh, the need for the brick-and-mortar store may be rapidly dying. What do you think? And something that most folks aren't talking about, Dan. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the, the pandemic has certainly gotten people more comfortable with the process of ordering and having cannabis delivered directly to their homes. And on top of that, you've seen dispensaries that have much more quickly transitioned into being able to provide menus that you can order and uh, get delivered, order online and get delivered to your home. Um, but in Similar to every other industry where you would have otherwise had to go to a brick and mortar, we're seeing them shift to delivery services and quickly. And the pandemic has only accelerated that. And Mike and I have been talking about this for quite a while, but dispensaries up until the pandemic were commonly seen as one of the most valuable assets that you could have in cannabis because it was the fastest path to revenue um, and was high margin for your business because you could sell your own products through it. In the future, that's going to change as the model does, and delivery will be a big part of the future for this industry. You know, gentlemen, I had an, an, um, an opportunity to interview a gentleman who I've had on the show a number of times. He's very innovative in Canada. And he got, his company got the okay from the Canadian government to work directly with consumers and delivering the products to their homes. So there, they have eliminated an, an intermediary dispensary. You, you just said, Colin, that dispensaries put in delivery services. They eliminated the dispensary model, and they're doing it under the, under the control of the Canadian government. And when I spoke to him about it, 
uh, he thinks that that's where we're headed, and it's and it's home delivery, but but he thinks that what's going on is that the amount of time that people have spent studying the drug, meaning consumers, and what they've been able to call from the websites of the dispensaries, they're more comfortable about making the decision about what they want to buy, and so the need to go into a dispensary and discuss with a Budmaster is something that's rapidly dying out. So an Amazon model for distribution or a home delivery dispensary, uh, he thinks is, as you said, Colin, the wave of the future, and it could be coming more coming quickly because the longer the pandemic continues to linger, and now they're talking maybe into the end of 2021, early 2022, before we can go back to whatever was normal. Uh, I think that, uh, that that there's a possibility that this could delivery could be a less costly, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, a less costly entry into the cannabis business, and that creates opportunities for a whole different group of people to get in. What do you think about that? Well, you made a good point, just sort of in that uh, in that analogy about. Um, as I view it, it's sort of who actually owns the customer. The person doesn't actually need to talk in a physical location to a bud tender to find the product they want. And instead they're, I guess, ordering online or researching what's effectively a virtual bud tender. Um, you know, if, if they're, if they're looking down a, a list of reviews or what have you, or even, you know, actually chatting with someone virtually, you don't necessarily need that, that physical location. But I think what's going to, increasingly become important over time is is having some more brand equity where you know they're not just looking for a strain they're looking for you know a specific uh you know specific product they're not just looking for you know to use like a coffee analogy they're not just looking for you know a latte they're looking for a starbucks latte specifically you know if they, so any company that can on a more wholesale basis, have that sort of wholesale brand and deliver, you know, a consistent experience, uh, you know, through through a consistently delivered product. Sort of the way that product is delivered almost doesn't even matter, right? If they're buying it on the store or if they're buying it, you know, through a delivery system or if they're even buying it, what it sounds like you're doing is what you're talking about in Canada is actually more of a direct, you know, direct to consumer from a wholesale supplier model almost. Um, right, you know, that's right. sort of ultimately who will win, you know, the, the dispensary model, in, in, you know, is apart from different local regulations that were, you know, designed in certain respects, but, you know, ultimately you're just delivering a product to a consumer and, you know, if it's more convenient to have that on every street corner versus, you know, having it delivered to you, um, you know, you know, semi-regularly, then it'll, you know, that, it'll shift to the way that's legal and that customers want. Let me give you, gentlemen, let me give you an analogy that, that I've been thinking about. Look what has happened because of the pandemic about the explosive growth of telemedicine. We have a gentleman on our show, Dr. Uh, Tischler, and he had two offices in Boston. He's gone 100% to telemedicine, and he actually believes that the customers are happier because they're talking from their own home environment. I suspect that you could create, you could take the telemedicine model 
and create online gurus who can help you figure out what cannabis you need and tell you where uh, what you need a brand or as you said Colin and then you just go on the line and you buy it and have it delivered to you eliminate almost totally eliminating the need for dispensaries the benefit also being you don't have these centers where you have the the opportunity of illegal activity uh, and, and robberies and everything else uh, by the, the retail presence of, of a dispensary. You change the crime situation, change a lot of things. What do you think about that? It's, everybody wins in this situation, right? Um, with the exception of, a, of course, the operators that own the dispensaries. But in reality, dispensaries are, are a cost center for these operations. And there's a limited mm-hmm. margin that you can have over the long term for any given dispensary because ultimately you're going to be selling a set of commoditized, relatively commoditized products with the exception of a handful of brands that you're stocking. So whereas right mm-hmm. now you might have some um, demand-driven pricing power in these operations, being able to deliver to clients, you don't have the overhead of having that brick and mortar. And as you noted, Tan, the cost of being able of having to store a bunch of cash in your vault in your dispensary and paying somebody right. in an armored truck to pick it up every week it drastically mm-hmm. will be outstripped by having an, an obscure warehouse you're keeping all your products in that you're paying much lower lease for and um, and distributing directly to the customer that no longer has to go to a store um, doesn't seem like anybody really you know, in that I, equation. this telemedicine model this internet model this distribution to you is going to ring out or is it going to ring out a lot of costs and you mentioned you Colin you mentioned about brands uh hot there is no dominant brand and that's why in a previous show I asked you the question about major marketing brands and and you know you could look at Procter and Gamble you could look at um Amazon you could look at a lot of different consumer products companies who could be are in the business of establishing a brand uh, could establish their own brands of cannabis products and market that brand uh, for, for whatever they want to, and then sell it anywhere in the world that, that will that they can get to distribute the product. Yeah, that's I think that's sort of the, the long term that's sort of the long term uh, goal. Eventually, uh, I, mean, I, just, I would just clarify that at least in my mind, a brand is is not just a logo and a name. It's basically the repeated positive experience or repeated experience with consumers over time where, you know, you know exactly the effect and the, the service, the thing you're going to get when you buy something like to use a Starbucks again, like I know exactly what a Starbucks coffee will taste like regardless of where I buy it. It's, it's the same at every mm-hmm. single Starbucks, no matter where I go. The trick right. with, with flour at this point is that since it's more of a raw agricultural product, you know, different batches can vary, right? It's like when you go to the supermarket and you're like, oh, the bananas don't look so good today. They looked great last week. I'll wait a week, you know, and then mm-hmm. wait till they look better. Uh, right. But in the processed product realm, I think you'll, you'll be more, it'll be easier, frankly, just to have um, a more engineered, repeatable process in a processed product like an edible or, um, you know, tinctures or, or what have you where, you know, the product can be engineered to be, they know exactly how much THC and CBD and terpenes of every kind is in each batch of products. So you engender that consistency. Right. So whenever you buy it, you know exactly what you're going to get. I think if you get that, right. 
you know, then the, then the, the telemodel is real easy in terms of, you know, I order this, it shows up tomorrow and I know exactly what it's going to be like and what exactly it's going to do. Right. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, believe it or not, we're out of time again. Uh, it's been a, a, a pleasure and, and, and fascinating for me to talk to you about what's happening in this business that we're all in and it's moving very rapidly. Tell people, uh, Mike and Colin, how they can follow your organization. Uh, you can uh, read everything we're writing over at mjresearchco.com, so mjresearchco.com. And you can email us at mikeandcolin at mjresearchco.com. So, gentlemen, thank you for joining our show today. It was a terrific interview. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll have you back again soon. Thanks for having talk to you. Thank you for taking part in America's Cannabis Conversation. W420RadioNetwork.com